The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. Grateful to have the opportunity to study this book. And tonight we do come to a a pivotal place in the book. there are actually a couple of places where we might have addressed this one particular issue of the structure of the book, but I thought the beginning of chapter 6 would help us uh, think through that uh, hopefully clearly. And it also sets um, Revelation 6 in its historical context, which I think is also helpful. And so we've um, sort of postponed speaking about structure until we've gotten here to this point, and I pray it'll help you tonight as we think through the book. Knowing that structure and how Revelation is laid out as a book helps tremendously with our eschatology. It's a tremendous help for laying out eschatology and how we're to understand eschatology. So I pray tonight, if you'll think with me uh, carefully through it, jot down some notes, um, uh, try to put these things in your mind, uh, in their, hopefully in their right order, and that's really going to help us um, think through a good layout of our eschatology moving forward in the book. So uh, tonight, in a sermon entitled The Four Horsemen, We're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 6, although we're not going to really get to discuss much about the four horsemen until next time we're together. Uh, We are going to take an introductory look at the four horsemen tonight and our text, Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. So if you'll turn in your Bibles there with me, I'm going to read the text and then we'll pray and look at what the Lord has for us in our text this evening. Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Hear the word of God. Now I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, come and see. And I looked and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out. And it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth and that people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come and see. And so I looked and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was Death. And Hades followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. This is the word of God. Amen. 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 Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the joy, the privilege, the blessing of studying your word. Thank you, Lord, uh, the, the, the excellent and uh, tremendous wisdom contained in your word that we might live for you by it. And help us, Lord, to understand these things. Help us to um, have them straight in our heads. Help us to meditate on them, to think through them, uh, to consider what it is that you're communicating to us. 
uh, not only what you say, Lord, but what you mean by what you say. Help us, Lord, to apply these things to our heart and mind that we might live in light of what you've communicated so that we will persevere to the end, uh, that we would endure the, the suffering, the trials, and the tribulations that we face as the church, and may it be to your glory uh, that at your return, you will receive to yourself a chaste bride and that you would be glorified, magnified in our worship. Thank you for this text in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of our sermon, The Four Horsemen, Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. So as we return to our study of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, we now arrive in our study at chapter 6 now, as the Lord Jesus Christ begins to loose the seven seals, and to open the scroll, that scroll that's written on the inside and on the backside, full of the decrees of God concerning the time of the end, concerning the last days. Uh, the, the apostle John has been given a vision through a, an open doorway, standing open in heaven now, where he sees the very throne room of God, the most holy place in the heavenly temple. And he, he begins by describing the one seated there, and he describes him in terms reminiscent, if you will, of Daniel 7 and Daniel's vision of basically the same throne room scene. The ancient of days enthroned there in glory, enthroned there in praise, and then John draws our attention from the one seated on the throne to a scroll that he holds in his right hand. And one, like the Son of Man, another reference to Daniel chapter 7, uh, coming on the clouds of heaven, he enters the throne room, and it is found that he alone is worthy to take the scroll. He alone is worthy to open its seven seals. He alone has prevailed. He's prevailed. He is the great overcomer, the root of David, the lion from the tribe of Judah. When John then turns to look at this conquering warrior who's entered the throne room, uh, he sees a lamb as though it had been slain. And this lamb then steps forward to take the scroll as heaven and earth erupts in worship. And we know this lamb to be none other than the Lord Jesus Christ who conquered through his death at Calvary. It's at his resurrection from the dead that Paul says in Romans chapter 1 verse 4 that Jesus Christ is declared to be the son of God. It's at his resurrection that he's declared to be the son of God. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the son of God with power. He ascends to heaven bodily as a man and takes his place at the right hand of the majesty to rule and reign over the inaugurated kingdom of God, that kingdom which shall never be destroyed. Uh, and he has been given now all authority, all authority to rule and to reign, all authority in heaven and on earth. It's at his bodily ascension into heaven that he fulfills that vision of Daniel 7, the one coming on the clouds of heaven to the ancient of days, the one who receives the kingdom and the saints receive the kingdom in him. All of that is fulfilled at the bodily ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ into heaven. There, it's, he's given all dominion. He's given, as Daniel says, dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's Nations and tongues, all elect Jews and all elect Gentiles should worship and serve him. It's at his bodily ascension, when he ascends into heaven, that he takes the Davidic throne to rule over the promised kingdom. And that kingdom is an everlasting kingdom which shall not pass away, a kingdom which shall not be destroyed. And it's here then, it's here in Revelation chapter 6, 
that he begins then to execute the decrees of God written in the scroll concerning the end of the age. If you put this in its context, the Lord Jesus Christ ascends into heaven. He goes to the Ancient of Days. He receives the kingdom, and he takes the scroll. And as the Lord Jesus Christ begins to rule and reign over the kingdom, immediately after his bodily ascension into heaven, he breaks the seals on the scroll and begins to execute the decrees of God that are written there. So it's here in Revelation 6 that all that is taking place. Those decrees of God in the scroll concern the end of the age. They are God's determination, God's decrees for this period of time in which we are now in. It's the end of the age, the church age, decrees that will usher in ultimately a consummated end of all of God's redemptive plans and purposes. The ultimate salvation of his people and his judgment upon the wicked. Now, in the language of Revelation chapter 12, which is a pivotal text to help us understand uh, the chronology here, In the language of Revelation chapter 12, the seed of the woman has crushed the head of the serpent. The Lord Jesus Christ is victorious at Calvary. Um, That male child that the woman gives birth to, the woman representing the people of God, the male child representing the Lord Jesus Christ, the woman gives birth to the male child, and the male child is caught up to God and to his throne. That's the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's there, having been caught up to heaven and to his throne, that he shall rule the nations with a rod of iron. He receives the kingdom and begins to rule. The woman, again, symbolic of the people of God, verse 5, bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. Then the woman, representing again the people of God, fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there, the people of God, 1,260 days, 1,260 days, that translates into 42 months or three and a half years, times, times, and half a time, and what does that recall for us? What does that period of time point to for us? It points us back to Daniel's 70th week, and that period, we're in the first half then of Daniel's 70th week. A time period, pointed back to Daniel's 70th week, a time period that represents the church age, right? When the church is scattered uh, and goes everywhere preaching the gospel. It's at this time that Satan, the accuser of the brethren, chapter 12, is cast down to the earth. He's cast out at the ascension into heaven of the Lord Jesus Christ. He no longer, no longer does he accuse the brethren there day and night. But our advocate is now there, always living to make intercession for us, and Satan is cast out. Verse 10, listen to verse 10 there. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. That's interesting, if you think with me about that scene, just incidentally, this is an aside, um, Satan is cast out. Before Satan is cast out, where is Satan? Satan is essentially before God, day and night, accusing the brethren. And that's because up until the point of Jesus Christ and his sacrificial substitutionary death on the cross, um, the death of Jesus Christ hasn't taken place yet. And Satan has a claim, doesn't he? 
He can stand there and accuse because a a sufficient sacrifice has not yet been made. And what is Satan doing? Satan is standing at the throne of God, accusing brethren day and night. Now the Lord Jesus Christ in victory, right? He's victorious upon the cross. There has been a substitutionary, a sufficient, all sufficient, once for all sacrifice for all of God's people. And Satan has to shut his mouth, right? Satan, a defeated foe then, is cast to the earth. There is in Revelation 12 the battle that takes place, and Satan is cast out, his mouth shut. He's bound, so to speak. We'll talk about that later. Um, Satan is cast out, and the Lord Jesus Christ begins to rule. All of this while the people of God flee into the wilderness of this world so to speak, in Revelation 12, where they are nourished by God for 1,260 days for a period referred to as the first half of Daniel's 70th week. And the people of God, what do they do in the wilderness? They overcome. They overcome Satan by the blood of the Lamb. They overcome Satan by the word of their testimony, by their faith. And it says there in Revelation 12, they did not love their lives even to the point of death for his sake. They did not love their lives even to death. And what is that describing? That is describing the church in her time of tribulation in the wilderness during the first half of Daniel's 70th week. The church faces persecution, the church faces tribulation, and even death before the Lord returns. And that's why we're called, brothers and sisters, to be faithful even to the end. We are called to overcome. We're called to persevere. Um, The Lord himself says that in him we have peace. In the world, we're going to have tribulation. Tribulation. It is through many tribulations that we are to enter the kingdom, Paul says in Acts 14. So the first, the church is going to face persecution, tribulation, and even death before the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are to be faithful like our Savior. We are to be faithful even until the end, even until the point of death. That all in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ was faithful in the power of the Holy Spirit through death into resurrection life. So it's here now. Put this together with me. It's here then, at the ascension of Jesus Christ, at the beginning of Daniel's 70th week, at the beginning of the last days, at the beginning of Revelation chapter 6. You see? Where we find now, at the beginning of Revelation chapter 6, where we find Jesus Christ taking the scroll and beginning to loose its seven seals. He has received the kingdom, he's received the scroll, and he begins to loose its seven seals. It's important at the outset of Revelation 6 to understand where we are in redemptive history. Revelation 6 at this point um, started in the past. It started at the ascension of Jesus Christ when he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sits on the throne. And we are still uh, living under the effects of that, those events even now in the church age. That scroll... That scroll is the same scroll that was shut up and sealed in Daniel chapter 12. And it was sealed until the time of the end there in Daniel chapter 12. It's a time we now find ourselves in. We are in the time of the end. That scroll now begins to be unsealed. And why is the scroll beginning to be unsealed? Because the time of the end has come. The time of the end has come. 1 John chapter 2 verse 18, John himself says, Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now, this is John in the first century, even now, many Antichrists have come, by which we know it is the last hour. When did the last hour begin? When was the last hour inaugurated? In the time of John the Apostle. And we are living in the last hour even now. Many Antichrists have come, and there will be a final iteration of that pattern. We know that. 
And that will come at some point in time. We're living in the last hour. The seven seals then, the seven seals become the organizing principle of chapters six and seven into chapter eight. Those seven seals become the organizing principle of this section of text that begins, uh, began in chapter four and will last until the beginning of chapter eight. It's in these seven seals then, that organizing principle, that we also see the organizing principle for the entire book of Revelation. This is important to understand. It's here at the opening of chapter 6 that I've planned for us to consider that structure. This structure is something that's really important for us to understand to understand the book. For example, let me introduce this to you. For example, the book opens with letters to the seven churches. In chapter 6 through the opening of chapter 8, we see the loosing of seven seals. In chapters 8 through 11, there is the sounding of seven trumpets. In chapter 16, the seven bowls of wrath, God's wrath, are poured out upon the earth. Remember the number seven that we see everywhere. The number seven is representative of completion. Representative of completion. The entire book itself is comprised of seven literary cycles, uh, which is really a completion, if you will, of all of redemptive history. Seven representing completion, or the whole, or the entirety of something. Seven representing completion. Uh, Seven churches representing the entirety of the church. Uh, Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls representing the judgment of God. Everywhere the number seven. And in the entirety of the book of Revelation, seven literary cycles, if you will, uh, symbolizing the completion of all of redemptive history. We see the language of Daniel chapter 9. Uh, language such as this, making an end of sins, putting an end to all iniquity, ushering, ushering in everlasting peace, right? This is putting an end, as it were, bringing the consummation about of all of redemptive history. Now, many today attempt to place everything from chapter four through the end of the book in a strict chronological order that these events happen one after the other, and all of it is in the future. There are many, 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 many who put the book in that structure. That from chapter four to the end of the book is all chronological, all chronological. One thing happens after the other, and it all takes place in the, in the future. A simple comparison of Revelation chapter four and Revelation chapter five to Daniel seven or Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 2, a simple comparison of those texts, or a simple reading of Revelation chapter 12 makes that position entirely untenable. The, the book of Revelation cannot, cannot be structured or play out that way. It cannot be understood that way, okay? That position is entirely, entirely, entirely untenable. Others, others attempt to put all or most of Revelation, all of it in the past, as having already been accomplished in A.D. 70. It's a position that is also untenable. When, what we see in Revelation is a recurring or a recapitulating cycle, a progressive cycle, or a progressive spiral 
spiral that begins at the opening of the church age, as we've already established, right? Where are we in Revelation chapter 6? We're at the opening of the church age. At the beginning of 1260 days, referencing Daniel's 70th week, where the church is in the wilderness, being nourished by God, Satan is cast down, persecuting God's people, and we're waiting on the Lord's return, right? We're in the, in the church age. And that with each progressive cycle through the church age, we progress further and further in history until the return of Jesus Christ and the consummation of all things. And I want to show you those recapitulating cycles now in the book of Revelation. Let's look at the, the, the seven cycles in brief here together. And this is in brief. We're going to look at each one of these again when we come to them. But first, in the first cycle, the first cycle comprises chapter, chapters 1 through 3. When we see Christ in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, and we've seen those seven lampstands are representative of the church. Those seven lampstands are representative of the church, and even the fact that there are seven, those lampstands are representative of the church in every age, every church. From the, coming, the first coming of Jesus Christ to his second coming, those churches representative of the Lord's church throughout the church age, and each of those problems, each of those difficulties that the churches are facing, those are difficulties that we all face. We, the church as a whole faces those difficulties in every generation, and the conditions that are described in those seven letters to those seven churches, we find repeated in every generation. They are letters to churches that represent the entirety of the church age, and they're reiterated, those concerns, those difficulties, um, persecution from without, false teaching from within, false brothers from within, um, persecutors from without, that, those problems reiterated in every generation, those letters written to the church in every generation. That's the first cycle, chapters one through three. The second cycle then begins with the throne room scene that's introduced in Revelation chapter 4. And that cycle runs through the end of chapter 7 into the beginning of chapter 8, where the risen and exalted Christ takes the scroll, that scroll on which is written all of the decrees of God concerning the time of the end, that, that scroll that was sealed at the end of Daniel chapter 12 for the time of the end, now that the time of the end has come, that scroll is opened, the Lord begins to loose its seven seals, and the Lord Jesus Christ takes the scroll and begins that work. Again, this cycle spans the entirety of the church age. And I'm going to show that to you when we get to this text. From the ascension of Jesus Christ, where he receives the kingdom in Revelation chapter 5, right? The, the, um, Jesus Christ goes to the Ancient of Days and he takes the scroll out of him who sits on the throne, uh, from the right hand of him who sits on the throne. And that cycle ends with the return of Jesus Christ at the end of chapter 6, Revelation chapter 6, and the, the depiction of God's people in chapter 7. Now, turn there with me to Revelation 6, and look at verse 14. Now, listen to the words of the unbelieving at Christ's return in judgment. The Lord Jesus Christ is returning now in Revelation chapter 6, verse 14. Listen to the words. Then the sky receded as a scroll. Now, we know that language, don't we? We've heard that before, that the sky is going. When does that happen? Well, Peter says that happens at the return of Jesus Christ. Well, I thought this was Revelation chapter 6. Doesn't Jesus Christ return way back in Revelation chapter 
No, 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 no. Each of these is a repetitive cycle, and that's what I want you to see, right? Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb because, verse 17, the great day of his wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Now, when has it come? It has come in Revelation chapter 6. I'm going to submit to you, again, this is a repetitive cycle. And the church age that begins at the beginning of chapter 6 is concluded at the end of chapter 6 with the return of Jesus Christ to judge the wicked. Now, what takes place immediately then upon the return of Jesus Christ at the end of chapter 6 is a description of the church with Christ in eternity in Revelation chapter 7. Look at Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9. After these things, John says, I looked and behold a great multitude, which no one can number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and standing before the, lo- the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. Who, who is that? That's the church. That's God's people, a people of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, right? Verse 10, crying out with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Verse 15, therefore they, the people of God, the church, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will dwell with them. So, think with me now. The second cycle, the second cycle, chapters 4 through 7 into chapter 8, describes the entirety of the church age from the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ and him taking the scroll in Revelation chapter 5 to his return in judgment, Revelation chapter 6, and we see the church glorified and with Christ in eternity, Revelation chapter 7. You see that picture in those chapters, right? So now I want to commend that to you, to your study. When you get done with this, go home, (laughs) read Revelation chapter 4, 5, six, seven into eight, right? Read that section and you'll see in all of that a history, if you will, the redemptive history of the age in which we now live. Uh, in microcosm, if you will, um, the history of the church age from the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to his second coming. Now, that, 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 that history there that is wrapped up in those brief chapters is repeated in the cycles that follow. Cycle number three, the third cycle or scene consists of the trumpets then in chapters eight through chapter 11. If you'll flip there, this cycle steps slightly forward in redemptive history and begins with judgment upon the earth, begins with the pouring out of judgment. The earth is stricken. Those who dwell on the earth are stricken. And yet this world is unrepentant and further persecutes the church. Satan and his seed continue to persecute the church until the cycle ends, that cycle that begins in chapter 8, until that cycle ends with the return of Jesus Christ in final judgment, final judgment, chapter 11. And look at chapter 11, verse 15. Now again, this is the second cycle, uh, the third cycle, and it is a 
a second telling, if you will, of redemptive history that happens at the beginning of the church age to the return of Jesus Christ. We're now seeing it again in chapters 8 through 11. And look at chapter 11, verse 15. And again, this is the return of Jesus Christ. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. I thought that took place at the second coming of Jesus Christ, back way down in Revelation chapter. No, it does take place at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and his return is depicted here in Revelation chapter 11. And if you'll notice, the words there, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever, sounds strikingly similar to the victory that is pronounced in Revelation chapter 7 at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, where the people of God say salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Okay? Again, this is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, cycle 3. Chapter 11, verse 16. The 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. When is the day of his wrath? The day of his return. You see, Jesus Christ has come at the time of the dead that they should be judged and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Verse 19, then the temple of God was opened in heaven and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, and earthquake and great hail. And we're going to see those cosmic disturbances uh, again and again as we revisit each of these cycles as they depict the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, the day of his wrath. So you can see then how the material, think with me, the material of the third cycle is directly parallel with the material of the second cycle. That's where we get the term recapitulation. In cycle, in the third cycle, there has been a recapitulation of that which was given to us in the second cycle, namely the redemptive history beginning with the first coming of Jesus Christ and terminating upon the second coming of Jesus Christ. There's been a recapitulation. The third cycle is a recapitulation of the second cycle. But it also, it also here inches forward in history, again terminating upon the, the return of Christ. And so the structure isn't an exact circle. It's not, the, it's not the same telling again and again and again. Each time, there's a different vantage point. There's a different perspective, even a, a different period in redemptive history that takes the primary emphasis or the primary focus. It's more like a, an ascending spiral, right? It's an ascending spiral, and the whole book is going to terminate upon the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, and God and the Lamb ruling in it, illuminating it, and the people communing with God in eternity. It's going to end there. So more like a, an ascending spiral. Fourth cycle. The fourth cycle begins with the birth of Christ in chapter 12, with the birth of the male child, the woman representing the people of God, giving birth to a male child. And it ends, the fourth cycle ends with Christ's return in judgment again, chapter 14. Each of these segments, you can take a look at the material and tell from what is being presented there uh, the, the span of these cycles, okay? In chapter 12, Satan attempts to devour the male child as soon as he's born, but he is caught up to God into his throne. He ascends into heaven. That's after his resurrection from the dead. 
Satan then, there's a battle that takes place in heaven. Satan is cast to the earth, where Satan, having been cast to the earth, he is cast down with great wrath because his time is short. Satan begins uh, the persecution of God's people. In the persecution of God's people, he employs a great beast coming out of the sea. He employs another great beast coming out of the earth in chapter 13. And then we're introduced to the harlot Babylon, this world system, and her wickedness in chapter 14. And then listen to this. At the end, the end of chapter 14, verse 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. Now, if you remember... Uh, having gone through Matthew chapter 24, at the very end of the age, immediately after the tribulation of those days, you will see one coming on the clouds of heaven like the Son of Man. Right? So this happens after the great tribulation, the tribulation period where the Lord Jesus Christ returns. This is the return, again, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is, again, another recapitulation of the same material. Verse 15. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. This is the Lord Jesus Christ coming back in judgment upon the earth. Okay? Fifth cycle. The next cycle, fifth cycle, comprises the seven bowls, Bowls of God's wrath from chapter 15 to chapter 16. And again, at the end of this cycle, in chapter 16, we see a reference to the Lord's return in judgment. And again, some, much of this material is parallel. And again, we see another parallel description of the return of Jesus Christ at the end of the this, this cycle. Look at chapter 16. Look there at verse 17. 17. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake. Do you notice the similar language? Those cosmic signs of the end of the age at the return of Jesus Christ. And such a mighty and great earthquake has had not occurred since men were on the earth. Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. It's the same language that takes place back in uh, Revelation chapter 7. Do you remember? 6, at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21, great hail. There it is again, from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. The very same cosmic disturbances, tempests and trials that come at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. The sixth cycle then. The sixth cycle moves forward in time to emphasize the judgment of the harlot and begins at chapter 17, concludes at chapter 19. The sixth cycle from chapter 17 to 19. Now, this, this cycle also ends with the return of Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 19, verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
His eyes were like a flame of fire. On his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. That's us, by the way, from our sermon this morning, Romans chapter 8. That's the, seven, uh, the sixth cycle from chapter 17 to 19. And then finally, the seventh cycle from chapter 20 through the end of the book. The seventh cycle from chapter 20 through the end of the book. The seventh cycle begins with the casting down of Satan. We know, don't we, from Revelation chapter 12, having already spoken about that, that the casting down of Satan takes place after a war in heaven at the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. After Jesus Christ ascends bodily into heaven, Satan is cast down to the earth. So it begins then with the casting down of Satan, emphasizing his final defeat. And we can lay this section of text over a very clear chapter 12 and surmise that this section of text also comprises the church age and runs through redemptive history to the return of Jesus Christ in victory and in judgment. Okay, so seven cycles or seven scenes, each of those cycles, each of those scenes spanning or recapitulating the history of the church from the beginning of the church age to the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ or at the birth of Jesus Christ to the return of Jesus Christ in judgment, each ascending the spiral, so to speak, culminating with a glorious description of the new Jerusalem in chapters 21 and chapter 22. So we see this recapitulation, each of these cycles recapitulating this one period of history that takes place from the first coming of Jesus Christ to his return. And we see similar recapitulation elsewhere. There's a similar recapitulation, for example, in Daniel. Um, If you remember from Daniel chapter 2 and Nebuchadnezzar's dream, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of a statue, and the statue containing four parts, four pieces, so to speak, and those four pieces or parts of that statue representing four kingdoms and the kingdom at the head at the top, the gold is the kingdom that will not be destroyed. The kingdom that lasts forever that parallels then it's recapitulated that vision of Nebuchadnezzar, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar recapitulated in the apocalyptic vision of Daniel with the beasts, the four beasts in Daniel chapter seven. And again, those beasts described in chapter eight and chapter 10, chapter nine. And that again, recapitulates the same period of history. That's that period of history seen from different vantage points and sometimes with different symbols, but communicating the same kinds of truths. Again, recapitulation in Daniel and that same recapitulation we see in the book of Revelation. Now, what are we to take away from that? If you understand that structure, then when you come to each of those repeated cycles, you know exactly what you're dealing with in the text, and you know exactly that where that is in the chronology, if you will, or in the context of redemptive history, and we can better understand exactly what is meant by the symbolism contained in those cycles. Right? As we get to each of those cycles, we'll remind ourselves of that recapitulation, we'll remind ourselves of where we are in redemptive history, and then we'll be able to tell more carefully, more precisely, what it is that's being communicated to us. Um, and also, what that tells us, each of those re- recapitulating cycles, is that this period of history 
extending from the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to his return at the end of the age, this entire period of history is represented by those cycles and what is being communicated in those cycles to us. So as we read through the cycle that we're going to continue tonight in Revelation chapter 6, we'll see those as each of the seals are loosed and we see the judgments that are being poured out. Those judgments are being poured out throughout the church age. And as much as John certainly would have seen those judgments poured out upon his day to the church in his day, brothers and sisters, those judgments are being poured out upon us in our day. We'll see when we get there what that communicates and how we're to see those things. That represents all of redemptive history from the first coming of Christ to the second. And so if we're looking at those cycles in that way, brothers and sisters, we're in that time period and we, the Lord is communicating to us the judgments that are being poured out even today. And we're to know how we are to um, think about our place in redemptive history. We know exactly where we stand. We know exactly what's happening and we can persevere. We can overcome. Right? The Lord Jesus Christ tells us these things so that, just as in John chapter 16, we do not lose heart, we do not lose heart, but we keep our eyes focused on him, the one who is ruling and reigning, the one who walks in the midst of the lampstands, the one who is sovereignly directing the decrees of God in this time of the end in his opening of the seals, so to speak. Right? We, he is the one ruling and reigning over this period of time. Very important to understand. This book is for us. This book is for us. These cycles are for us. The church in every age from the ascension of Christ in glory and exaltation to the return of Christ in glory and in judgment. And we'll see how all this is meant to, as we go, we'll see how all this is meant to encourage God's people as we move through each of the seven cycles. Our age is the final age. I think that's important to understand also. The age in which we live is the final epoch in redemptive history. We live in, as John says, in the last hour. As we'll see in working through Revelation, just as the Lord has said in Matthew chapter 24 and here in our text, judgment intensifies in both frequency and in severity like birth pangs upon a pregnant woman until we get to the return of Jesus Christ, the day of judgment, the eschatological Eden and the paradise of God until all of history uh, gives birth, as it were, to a new, to the regeneration, uh, to the ultimate and full consummation of the kingdom and the revealing of the sons of God. And like the cycles of the book then, those, those contractions, if you will, in redemptive history display a repetitive pattern. And that repetitive pattern is seen in each successive generation. It's almost as if when these patterns take place, like for, um, for a woman who's in uh, labor, having labor pains, right? Many times, especially the closer you get to the actual birth, the woman says, I think this is it. I think this, I think this is it. And then you find out it's Braxton. It's uh, Braxton Hicks. It's not, Braxton comes into the room and he's, he's full, you know. But every, every one of the repetitive, the repetitions of that pattern of those birth pangs, you tend to think the closer you get, this is it. I'm going into labor. Uh, but not yet, not yet, not yet, until the, the birth actually comes. Each reiteration of the pattern in each successive generation, if you will, carrying us closer and closer and closer to a full and consummated end of all of redemptive history. Um, it's just a repetitive pattern. And we see, we see that pattern repeated in our own generation, in our own time. And as we see that, we're to take our place as generations who have gone before us 
faithfully persevering, faithfully enduring through our time of tribulation until the time of our own end, as each successive generation of the church will until the consummated full end and Jesus Christ returns. So as we'll see through uh, working through Revelation, we'll see that pattern of intensifying judgment. And like the cycles of the book, these contractions are a repetitive pattern. Each repetitive iteration of the pattern intensifies and moves us all the closer to the final birth, the birth of the new age or the age to come. We're called in that, brothers and sisters, to be overcomers. We're called in that, taking our place in that, we're called to persevere to the end. He who perseveres to the end will be saved. We're called to endure. Jesus Christ says to overcome, and to to him who overcomes, I'll grant with him to sit on my throne, as I also overcame and sat on my Father's throne. Um, We are to overcome. Now that, that structure, hopefully, that establishes for you, if you will, the construction of the book and lays a good foundation for how we are to consider the seven seals, right? That, that structure then, we're in the second cycle that began in chapter four, will conclude at the very beginning of chapter eight, and we're dealing with one period of history from the, the first coming of Jesus Christ to his return, um, and hopefully that structure now will help us keep focused on where we are in the book of Revelation with respect to our place in redemptive history. Jesus Christ, as we come to Revelation, Revelation chapter 6 then, Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. He is ruling his kingdom from heaven. That's chapter 5. The church has entered her tribulation, and the Lord begins to pour out his judgments upon the earth and upon those who dwell there. And it's as we learned in our study of Romans chapter 1, verse 18, where Paul says in Romans 1.18 that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It's not that the wrath of God will be revealed in some future day of judgment. No, the wrath of God is presently, actively being revealed from heaven even now. It's the pouring out of these judgments. Right? And God even now is pouring out his judgment. And frankly, in our own experience, what do we see? we see the wrath of God being poured, about, poured out in our midst. We see the wrath of God being poured out upon our country. Uh, in our, our country, what we see all around us are the effects of God's judgments upon the wicked. Now, we see those present judgments initially executed in Revelation chapter 6 by four horsemen. Four horsemen prepared for war. Four horsemen arrayed against the enemies of God. Now, We're still in, this is important to remember, we're still in the throne room scene when we come to chapter 6. There is no break between Revelation chapter 5 and Revelation chapter 6. We're still in the throne room, and the Lord Jesus Christ has taken the scroll from the right hand of him who sits on the throne, and Jesus Christ now has begun to open the scroll, breaking its seals. There is no break. We're still in the throne room. And we're, we're there now as the Lord begins to execute the decrees of God concerning our age in the breaking of the seven seals that are on that scroll. Again, the scroll containing decrees of, the decrees of God concerning the last days. That's where we are, Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. Now I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, come and see. Now based on the word being used and the grammar of the text, the command to to come is addressed to the horsemen. The command to come and to see 
is addressed to the horsemen. Verse 1, verse 1, the first seal is opened. The first living creature says to the first horseman, come and see. Verse 3, the second seal is opened. The second living creature says to the second horseman, come and see. Verse 5, the third seal is opened. The third living creature says to the third horseman, come and see. And the same for the fourth in verse 7. Do you see the pattern? Now, that word is an imperative. It's a command. And the command is given by those closest to the throne. It's given by the four living creatures. They're there, uh, described, the four living creatures described as being there at the throne and in the midst of the throne. Their voices sound like thunder, verse 1. In other words, those four living creatures are compelling the horsemen with the authority of God himself. They're before the throne of God and in the midst of the throne, and they're proclaiming with a voice like thunder to the four horsemen, come and see. Right? In other words, they're compelling the horsemen with the authority of God himself. Who is the one who is directing the affairs that are happening right now in Revelation chapter 6? It's the one seated upon the throne. And he is executing his decrees now through these four living creatures who are compelling the four horsemen. And again, that word is an imperative. It's a command. It can be taken as a middle or a passive, for you all considering Greek. Middle means that they come, they're commanded to come for themselves, to see for themselves. They're going to see and behold the earth and the people who dwell on the earth before they are sent to pour out judgments. And so they're, com they're commanded to come um, and see for themselves. More likely, it's intended as a passive, a passive, which means the command to come, they are ushered to come, right? The command uh, um, falls on them and they are compelled to come by the authority of the one who sits on the throne. The time has come and these four horsemen step forward to behold and to see those who live on the earth. So each of the seals are opened and with the opening of each seal directly connected to the opening of the seal is the horseman who is coming to pour out judgment. The, the horsemen are compelled from the throne, come and behold the earth, come and behold those who dwell there, and then each is sent to the earth in judgment. With each opening of a seal, there is a horseman who comes and judgment is poured out. Now, it's evident, it's evident from that connection that each of these seals and each of these judgments are written on the scroll. As the scroll is opened, the horsemen are compelled and judgment is poured out. So it's these judgments, the judgments, these judgments are found written on the scroll that the Lord Jesus Christ is opening and it's judgments, judgment poured out during our age, during the church age. Remember, we're at the beginning of the church age here in Revelation chapter six and this is speaking of a pattern that is taking place even in our age. Now, as the command is given to the first horseman, verse two, John looked and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now think with me for just a moment. In comparison with John's description of the other horsemen, uh, this particular description of this first horseman described in verse 2 causes some difficulty for people. The language is similar to that description of another horseman in Revelation 19. If we remember that, we just read that here uh, just a moment ago. In verse 11, 
where John says, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true. That description is missing here, okay? But the one who sat on the white horse in Revelation 19 was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. He has many crowns on his head. He goes out to strike the nations and the language of Revelation 19 we saw there is describing the son of God. As we'll see from Old Testament background, and we're going to have to save Old Testament background for these four horsemen until next time we're together. The one who sits on this particular white horse is not the Lord. He is one of the four horsemen. And each of these four we've seen before in the Bible. They've all been given the same mission from our omniscient and omnipotent God. So these four horsemen are each given the same essential mission of pouring out judgments upon the earth. They have walked to and fro. If you look at the text, they've walked to and fro across the whole earth. They have witnessed the nations at their ease and the people of God at their exile. And now they begin to pour out the four judgments of God upon the earth. Judgments through which the, the, the wicked are put down and judge, judgments through which God's own people are refined as though by fire. Trials that God's people will go through like as Peter says, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold which perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That judgment, that difficulty, that adversity that casts down the wicked oftentimes is the very same judgment that refines the people of God um, and their faith like gold. The Lord himself explains to our forebears in a past generation in John chapter 16, verse 33. The Lord says, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So as we understood, think with me now, as we understood from the experience of the seven churches in the opening cycle of Revelation, as we understand from the tribulation that the church is going through, a tribulation that will increase in intensity and severity until the end, as we've seen, there is one who rules. There is one who walks in the midst of the lampstands. There is one who cares for his church. And he is able to preserve his own until the time of the end. I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed to him until he returns again. He's able to keep us. He works all things together for our good, He's able to deliver his own. So what are we to do, brothers and sisters? We're to be faithful. We're to endure. We're to persevere. We're to be faithful even unto death. We are to overcome through faith. And listen, if we are those who are called to overcome to the point of death, we're not to fear. The Lord Jesus Christ has gone before us and he has given us of his spirit. I don't know that anyone would be able to endure as Jesus Christ endured, without the Spirit of God, we would all find ourselves cowardly and fearful and retreating and shrinking back. But we have Christ's promises. We have his word. We have his faithful example. He's our forerunner, and we have his spirit. And so the Lord will see to it that he preserves his own. He knows how to deliver his own out of trial. He knows, and he will preserve us to the time of the end. We are to be faithful, we're to overcome, and the Lord Jesus Christ always leads us in triumph, amen? So as time, times get difficult for us, and I believe that they will, I'm sure you can see it just as I can, 
um, we can see dif- the difficulty mounting, those birth pangs increasing in intensity and severity. We're to endure. And as we endure, brothers and sisters, in our own generation, we have the Lord Jesus Christ, the promises of his word and his spirit to help us and to direct us and to preserve us. Next week, we'll look at this text in more detail. But Ezekiel chapter 14, in verse 21, listen to this text. We'll, We'll look at this in more detail next week. Verse 21, for thus says the Lord God, how much more it shall be when I send my four severe judgments on Jerusalem, the sword and famine and wild beasts and pestilence to cut off man and beast from it. Yet behold, there shall be left in it a remnant, a remnant who will be brought out both sons and daughters, surely they will come out to you and you will see their ways and their doings. Then you will be comforted concerning the disaster that I have brought upon Jerusalem, all that I have brought upon it. And they will comfort you when you see their ways and their doings. And you shall know that I have done nothing without cause that I have done in it, says the Lord God. That's comforting to me. That's comforting to me. The Lord has promised He'll pour out his judgments, and he'll pour out his judgments in every iteration and every generation until the return of Jesus Christ, and his people will endure through tribulation. Why? Because God sees to it that they do. He will perceive, he'll, he'll protect us. He'll preserve us. Uh, he is going to preserve a remnant who will be brought out, sons and daughters, and they will come out, and you'll see their ways and their doings, and their ways and their doings will glorify our God. Do you see? It's a glorious picture. Blessing, honor, glory, and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you and thank you for the promises of your word. Help us, Lord, not to be daunted uh, by the, the difficulties and the adversities that we face, but help us to look with boldness and with courage there, with faith in Jesus Christ, knowing that he has overcome and that we shall overcome through faith in him. What is the victory that has overcome the world? But our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has overcome, and we, Lord, know by the power of your spirit that we can overcome in him through faith. Help us, Lord, to live faithfully for you. With these battles coming, Lord, uh, help us to face the little ones in faith. <laughs> help us not to shrink back when they're, uh, or to, to compromise, even in small ways. Lord, help us to live fervently and zealously and diligently for you with boldness and with courage, with strength and with might, with a power. Uh, with you, with which you raised Christ from the dead, that power that now works in us, help us to stand up to the difficulties that we face in life for your glory. May they be seen to praise your name at your return. We love you. We thank you for texts like this. Help us, Lord, as we continue to work through Revelation to understand and embrace these things in faith and to live mightily for you until you come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.